Get him stopped. Get him stopped. God and Moses both in a sidecar did not drive a sprint car with a thousand horsepower. I swear to God, he done a double somersault backwards. My car will go past wide open. Uh, my 50,000 came in a Twinkie box. You know, I get my jollies off over looking at a nice car wash. You know, he's going to crash your shit, but he's still, he's still got great stories. Oh, they disappeared. Oh, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> Inflated your old ball sack and you just freaking let it eat. It's all goddamn assholes and elbows, and if you ain't right, they'll send your ass to the rear. Hello again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Open Red, the official podcast of the Award of Outlaws NOS Energy Drink Sprint Car Series and the Extreme Outlaw Midget Series presented by Toyota. My name is Ross Weiss. Thank you for listening this week. Kind of a really cool but kind of different interview on the show this week. So, a little bit of backstory. Jack Jack Harris is a uh, longtime car owner in the Southern Illinois area uh, in midget racing. Uh, Jack is a longtime friend of my family's. Lives in a small town of Virginia, Illinois, not far from my hometown of Carbondale, Illinois. Uh, Jack worked with my grandfather in the Illinois Department of Transportation uh, state garage uh, while while growing up. So Jack's been a family a, a friend of my family's for a long time. But the the reason for this interview is I wanted to do a story with Jack just because the incredible longevity that Jack and his father before him have had in dirt track car ownership in that area in Illinois, still racing midgets to this day. Jack's father, Roy Harris, gets started owning his first race car in 1954, and nearly 70 years later in 2023, Jack is still owning and operating a midget team from his very small single-car garage shop in Virgins, Illinois. So about a 20-minute interview with Jack. It's going to kind of have a little bit different cadence and flow that you're used to hearing with interviews on this show uh, because you're hearing the audio from a full video interview that I did with Jack at his shop. So whether you're hearing this show uh, because you've just are subscribed to Open Red and showed up in your feed or you're here because you saw the about five, six minute video that we put out also video version of this interview with Jack and him telling his story as well. I hope you enjoyed this really, really cool uh, just look and perspective on racing uh, that Jack has, and just a really unique story that stretches so many decades uh, throughout this evolution of dirt track racing that Jack has seen in his life. So without any further ado, nearly 70 years in the business, here's Jack Harris this week on Open Red. I want to talk about Harris Racing as a whole, um, not just midgets, because you've been a part of this. You know, you guys, you and your dad before you have been have had race cars, yep. obviously for for decades. So, yep, since '54 yep, so, when he started. So I hit the big red button here. So I'm gonna we'll just gonna we're just gonna start this thing and dive right into it. So, I. What's your earliest memory of racing in, in your life, Jack? Oh, probably when I was six, seven. And what, what would that racing have been? Uh, the old stock cars. And that was your, your dad? Yes. What, so what, what got your dad into, into racing at first and, and car ownership specifically? Well, the guy that he uh, helped on a garage out here, he was, had a car and he thought he needed one too. Did your, did your dad ever do any driving himself, or, or was it just ownership? 
one time. And uh, he decided he didn't want to do that. What, what, what shied him away from it? Uh, well, it was down at Metropolis, and the first time he got out on the track, it was a half-mile track, and it didn't, he didn't really like it. So when you talk about the, the stock cars at the time, you know, kind of what, what are the cars you're describing that you, you guys first got in with? Kind of walk me a lap around one of the cars at, at, at that time. And that was in the early to mid-50s, right? The mid-50s, okay. yes. And it was uh, the, uh, like a 37 Ford Coupes, 35 in that area. Who were, you talk about drivers at the time, who were some of the guys that he had drive for him at that time in the 50s? Uh, Back then, it was uh, Bobby Baines, uh, well, Dick Poe drove, and uh, let's see, Jesse Crow, Corky Ryder. What was your, inv did you have any involvement helping with any of it at that time, or were you just a little kid sitting up in the grandstands watching? Yeah, you had to be 16 to get in the pits, so, but at home, you know, worked on them there and everything. Did you help? So, were you really helping work on them, or were you just kind of the little kid in the background helping? Uh... Well, uh, at the younger age, yeah, just washing stuff and stuff like that. But then, you know, the older age, then definitely got working on it. So, where I mean, what's kind of the the radius around the area that you guys raced within at that time? I, I you know, obviously, I've heard Grandpa Eddie tell stories about. Benton and Turnpike, and you mentioned Metropolis and running down at Cape, but what all, what all racetracks specifically were you guys running the stock car at at that time? Well, then it was uh, Mount Vernon, Centralia. Uh, that was about that far up, and then, uh, you know, Marion, well, Murfreesboro. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. they had a track there. So how long did you guys stay involved in stock cars before the open wheel side of things came into the picture? Well, let's see. Probably in 65, we had stock cars then, or what was called coupes then. So about 65. So was it, was it always you know, now known as Silver Crown cars, but was it always the big cars and the champ cars that you guys got first into, or was it midgets and sprint cars, or what What did that transition look like for you guys to get you into op open-wheel cars? Well, uh, sprint cars... Uh, they probably weren't necessarily called sprint cars at that time, but... Oh, yeah, they was sprint cars then. Uh, for, uh, well, let's see, I was in, I believe, 65 or 67 when I graduated, instead of getting a, a car for graduation, got a sprint car. And we started off with sprint car then. And did that kind of expand your footprint at all? I know, again, talk about Grandpa Eddie, he you know runs sprint car at Hobstad or wherever else, but where, where, where were you guys taking that sprint car at the time and who was running it? Uh, let's see, that was down at Cape, and over here at Marion Turnpike and Hobstadt, and that was about it. And who, who all did you guys have in your sprint car? Uh, let's see. We had uh, Tom Teepee, Jim Hirsch, Dennis Irwin, 
uh, well, quite a few on back then. So was there, when did the transition come to get into champ car racing? Uh, we got it in in uh, 19, we got the car in 76. So was it, you said from 65 when you got in the sprint car, was it all the sprint car from 65 to 76 or did you do anything else in that time period? Uh, well, we had a modified also that we run down at uh, Sykeston and uh, over here at Marion also. But then we got sprint car and then the silver crown car. What was the pull to get in the Silver Crown car? I know you guys did quite a bit of traveling. I've seen the pictures on the wall and some of the pit passes around here. You guys took that champ car to a, to a lot of places, but what, what was the, the draw for your dad and for you at the time to get into big car racing? I guess going up here at Ducoin and, you know, watching the Silver Crown cars up there. How, so you guys have been here in, in this same shop we're sitting in at Virgin's the whole time, or was there, were you ever based in it? anywhere else no right here for since uh, over 50 years now so Ducoin was Ducoin was the biggest driving reason that got you guys into silver crown racing then pretty much and we found a very cheap silver crown car at that time well tell me about that then what 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 constituted a, a cheap silver crown car in the 1970s well uh, JD Burke I believe it was he was from Sparkman, Arkansas, and he had the car, and it, the engine blew up. I think it was up here at Ducoin, and he advertised it for sale. So, and it was only like three thousand dollars for the whole car, the tires, everything. So what have you? So you buy a car, tires, and a and a blown up motor. You said what's the what's the work after that to go get it ready to actually go run it? Uh, a lot, you know, but just rebuilding the motor because the rest of it's pretty good shape. So then what, do you have any memories of when you guys first went went mile racing for the first time? Or was, that's, that's a pretty big transition from the small tracks you guys had been on doing every, you said, you know, a half mile had been the biggest thing after that, but. Right. Yeah, I believe it was, well, it was Springfield was the first race. We went to. Is there any any challenges from that you guys had to overcome? A whole lot different than a quarter mile. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys driving your your first champ car there? Uh, Bill Burks. And at the time, so you've in my time knowing you and Harris Racing, you've it's been the same white car, blue frame, but it was. Was that when it was the, the baby blue 37 at the beginning, or was it a different car at, nope, at the beginning? that was it, 37, yes. Was there any significance behind the number 37? Uh, USAC assigned you a number, and that was one of the first available numbers, so we just took it. So where, you mentioned, obviously, Ducoin and Springfield. Where all else did you take the, the champ car to at the time? I've seen, again, pictures and pit passes from all over, but... Where where did that champ car take you around the country? Well, over to Indianapolis on the mile. Then uh, we went to Syracuse, New York, a couple times. How many times did you make the trip out to Syracuse? Uh, I think we, I believe three. We got rained out one. That's a long way to tow to get rained out. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I mean, so what's what's some of your fondest memories or, or favorite stories from that, that time in uh, your life in, in, in racing? Well, I know that's a big question, but... 
Well, what the, probably the biggest moment was, I mean, not winning or anything, but uh, we had the car, the Silver Crown car we bought from J.D. Burke was the last roadster that A.J. Watson ever built. Really? Yes. And it's a bad deal. <laughs> we we uh, didn't, we knew it was, Watson Roadster, and he just narrowed it, or they narrowed it up for dirt car. But what we didn't know was, it was the last one, and we sold the car to Randy Bateman at Murfreesboro, and then he run it a while, and then sold it to a guy up in Michigan, and uh, Phyllis took me over to the Speedway, ending after the Speedway in May, and uh, Randy told me that the guy that bought that frame was up there, you know, with the car. Mm -hmm. And he told me the price of what that guy gave for that frame and didn't really believe it, <laughs> but it was true. Uh, let's say Phyllis took me up there, we talked to the guy, and the guy gave $100,000 for the frame. Wow. Bet you wish you'd hung on to it a little longer. A whole lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, you know, when I asked about fond memories and stories, you said outside of winning, what, what are some of those wins along the way? Well, there was none in the Silver Crown car. Uh, I think we run, best we run there was, I think, ninth at uh, uh, DuCoin during the May race ahead up there. Mm-hmm. How about in the, the sprint car at those times? Uh, well, we won features and stuff, yes, mm -hmm. yes. So back to your, yourself and your, how did your involvement with the team and your dad kind of evolve as you got older and turned 16 and was able to go into the pits and, and do everything else? Uh, well, uh, when I turned 16, he built, we built a stock car. Well, it's that white number 11 up there. But uh, he turned it over to me, and that's when started ownership, taking care of it, having to pay for what it tore up, this, that, and the other. Did you ever try driving yourself, or were you always the one spinning the wrenches? No, Mom told me and my brother that uh, we could uh, own as many as we want, but we wasn't going to drive it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's another funny story. <laughs> that, that's, that's, you got, you got to go with what mom says for sure. Well, yeah, well, dad, the driver didn't show up with the old stock cars then. That was then, because I couldn't even get in the pits. And the uh, driver didn't show up, so dad put my brother in it. He'd never been in a race car, hadn't even been on the racetrack. <laughs> and when the announcer announced that uh, it was Roy Jr. in there, well, Mom called Roy Sr. up, and that was all of Roy Jr. driving. <laughs> how, how, did, how did Mom get a hold of your dad at the time? There, there wouldn't have been a cell phone to get a hold of, right? Uh, didn't have to have a cell phone because she went down to the fence and hollered at him. Ah, <laughs> hollered across the racetrack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. So when, when did I... I, I want to be careful asking about this because I don't want to ask you about anything that you're not comfortable talking about, but when did your, as I was kind of doing my research for this, when did your 
your eyesight start becoming... It happened at a pretty young age with an accident, didn't it? Well, no. No, I was born blind. Okay. And then had surgeries and got to see, see. And then, well, got diabetes in uh, 93. And then, you know, the, eye start, start, or the eyesight started going down after that. So as it's been explained to me, you do a lot of your wrenching on the car fully off a of feel, right? What, what kind of experience does, does that take working on these cars to kind of know what you're working with in, in those situations? Well, you know, we've had the midget, and the midget, midget's only since uh, 2004. So it's just, uh, you know, everything just comes to feel. Everything's natural, so. Is that part of why the car is solid white with a neon orange number two to help you kind of follow it around the racetrack as you're watching? Uh, it used to be. Used now to be. I can't see it. Okay. So what, I mean, with, with that in mind then, as the, the, the challenges of staying involved in this sport have only increased for you, what's, what's been what keeps coming you back? Is, is your, your love of the sport and your love of these little cars that strong that that keeps you involved? Or Yes, that's it. Yep. So you, you, you said 2004, like what, what made you make the move full-time to midget racing then? Oh, yeah. Ah, that's all right. It don't matter. Yep. Uh, well, we got rid of the silver crown cars and we got rid of the sprint cars. So we just had to have something. <laughs> so what, was there anybody in your ear at the time that kind of said, hey, go with a midget, or was it, what was the deal? No, no, just, uh, we went up to Belleville and watched Mare run a couple times, and sort of liked it, so found a car over in Indiana, bought it, and started from 04 on. So what, what's your time in, in midget racing been like? I know you've had a, that's, that's when, my personal knowledge of Harris Racing starts in about 2010 when I got my start as a video guy, but going up to Belleville and watching Hud Cone and Derek King and guys like that driving the, the midget. But in, you know, 04 when you first got started, what's, what's the operation look like? What kind of drivers did you have in the car at that time? Uh, well, in 04 we had Hud Cone. And then uh, 05, Derek started driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Derek drove for 10 years. And you guys still just, you stayed pretty close around the, the house here going to, I know it was a lot of power eye shows at the time, but I know Belleville, Brownstown, I've got, you know, making all kinds of video of the white 91 making laps, but what, what are some of your favorite places to go to with the midget? Belleville. Mm -hmm. Yes. What, what was it about little Belleville? Uh, just the com competition and the track, it's just the right size for midgets. So now, as I was kind of picking my Grandpa Eddie and Uncle Jimmy's brain last night, kind of having my notes together to come talk to you today, they, they mentioned that at, at one point, you might have acquired some equipment from the Irwins after Kenny's incident. Was, was that true? Yes. Yes, we did. We uh, got a dirt silver crown car and a pavement silver crown car. And that frames. was that was right after Kenny passed away. Yes. What what kind of help brought that deal together? That was just a really random tie-in that I didn't even know about your your history that you had had kind of acquired a lot of Kenny Irwin stuff after his accident. But 
how, how long did you guys keep using that equipment? Uh, let's see. Well, the Silver Crown car, we run from uh, 2000 to 2006 or five. And then we traded, traded the Silver Crown cars and stuff for some midgets. So was the decision to get out of Silver Crown Racing and go midget racing more a deal where you had more opportunities to go midget racing at, at that point since you only had maybe four or five races a year you went to with the Silver Crown car? Right, yes. That and that Silver Crown was getting too expensive. So what's kept you drawn to, to the midgets and staying involved in the, the, the midgets specifically? Well, the older you get, it's a little bit easier to work on. Tires is lighter, but <laughs> no, it's just, well, just the competition. It's unbelievable. So who's been, I know your, your whole deal here is kind of just you and Phyllis working on the car. Do you have any other friends at the racetrack that'll help you out when you go and you kind of make sure to pit with them? Or what's, what's your re relationship to the racetrack now look like? No, we just go. It's just me and Phyllis. Phyllis drives, so, you know, the truck trailer. So we just do it ourselves. We got, uh, well, Terry, he comes down and helps here. And then uh, Carl Walker, he helps us out at the racetrack. So when you... I guess when you kind of look at the the whole picture, you know, there's there's not a lot of car owners out there now with the, uh, I don't know if pedigree is the word I want to use, but just the the sheer longevity that the the Harris name has had in Midwestern dirt track racing, especially. What does that mean to you to to keep one of these ninety ones on the racetrack and keep you know? For, for the fact that in 2023 there's still a Harris-owned race car on these dirt tracks here in Illinois that there has been since the 1950s, what, what does that mean to you personally to keep that going? Well, that's the drive quite a bit behind it right there. Just, the, you know, being able to run and keep on running because there's a lots of little teams that's dropped out. We're about, well, one of the littler teams that's still going. So we're, I know you had Zach Dom drive the car back in December as, as it's here, March 2023, we're getting ready to go for the Extreme Outlaw opener this weekend at Ducoin. You've got Matt Veach in the car, but what do you kind of look for when you're, you're picking out a, a, a driver these days? Well, that's pretty tough anymore. Uh, there's a lot of young ones out there, but uh, you need to find somebody that got a little bit of respect and stuff like that, basically. I mean, we can't afford to go out there and run over people and or get run over, so we just have to, you know, pick and choose there. So I guess last question, I want to leave you with this. You said earlier that USAC assigned the numbers back in the day and you got 37, but you're sitting next to that 91 now. Where where'd the number 91 come from? You might want to edit this a little bit. <laughs> Go for it. USAC, we had 91 to start with. And there was a team that came back in that was number 91, and they wanted the 91. So we had to give up the number. And that wasn't good. And that's why we 
run 91 on everything now. So the second you got back into the midgets, that's why they were 91 immediately, because there wasn't yes. any number being assigned there. Yes, yeah. Was there any significance at all behind 91 at, at that time when you were first running it? Like, what settled you guys on that, that car number? No, when we uh, got back in it, the Silver Crown in 2000, uh, that was one of, there was only just a few numbers left, and that was the one that we picked, you know, that they would assign us. Very good. Well, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave you with, with this question then. What's, what's this is a, a big one, so take your time to think about it if you need to, but what's, what's the legacy of, of Harris Racing? All the years, I guess. sounding marking the final two minutes of the open red flag conditions well that's going to do it for us this week here on open red thanks to every one of you for listening a few housekeeping notes before we wrap it up this week please do not forget to rate review and follow open red on whatever platform you were listening to it on so drop a few stars leave a comment hit that follow button that really helps push the show into the feeds of people who aren't subscribed to the show and listening every week yet don't forget to follow the World of Outlaws and the Extreme Outlaw Midgets on social media across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. There's accounts there to follow one or both series everywhere. If you have suggestions for guests on the show, don't forget to tweet me at Ross and use that hashtag open red anytime you have a thought on the show or a note to get to me as well. Again, thanks everybody for listening. That's going to do it this week. We'll see you next time on Open Red. Hashtag open red.